Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 is what we'll be discussing this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'll read and then we'll pray. Verse 1, and, and he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed, and some seed fell among, along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. Then he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty-fold and sixty-fold and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning, God, and I pray that for those people that are here this morning, with a million and one thoughts in their head that's swirling around right now, and the worries that they carry up the stairs into the sanctuary, all in their head, all of them with real problems, real issues, real things that they're wrestling through, real concerns, maybe even fears. Jesus, I pray that you would outshine all the other answers to these problems with your gospel word this morning. That the gospel would take deep root in our lives. God, that you would turn our hearts into good soil today. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine if we had to make our own soil good. There's no way. We're too wretched, Lord. Help us to have hearts to receive your word this morning. That you would uproot doubt and laziness and worry and fear. And the seed of the word of God would go in deeply today. And I ask, God, that you would use me this morning. I just feel so inadequate to teach this teaching. I ask, God, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit, that we would all hear from Jesus today, that you would anoint my mind and my mouth and these things for your glory, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, every week since we started, we've been looking at the book of Mark. We've said that Mark is showing us 
who Jesus really is. And so that's why we decided to go through the book of Mark on, on Sunday mornings. It shows us, and we think this is huge in this city, we are talking about who Jesus really is. And we said that Mark is showing us the real Jesus. So the fundamental plot to Mark's story, the main reason, his goal, is the identity of Jesus. He's trying to get across who Jesus really is to show all of us his real, true identity. And that's what he's writing about. And Mark writes the story with rapid intensity. Mark writes the story of Jesus with rapid, he uses the word immediately all the time. He's flashing from scene to scene to scene. It's like when Jesus comes on the scene, something is happening, and it's happening fast. And so all this buzz is around Jesus. At this point in the story, there's so much of this buzz around Jesus that people are gathering to hear him from all over the place. They're gathering from 100 miles away without any form of transportation but their feet and maybe a mule. And they were traveling all this way to hear Jesus. People were coming to hear Jesus preach from 100 miles away, even from Gentile provinces. The preaching and the work of Jesus began to cut across racial and party lines, and crowds started to get dangerously dense. Two weeks ago, we read this in Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. The crowd was getting so dense, so packed, that they, the, the disciples had to have a getaway boat ready. Just in case it got crazy, Jesus would jump into the boat, like the disciples would immediately turn into the secret service, throw Jesus in the boat, and paddle violently away, because there was no, like, motorboat. So they would just go, you know, they would just scoot off and get Jesus away from the crowd, lest he be crushed. Now, what, Jesus doesn't use the boat in chapter 3, but here in our text this morning, he actually does use the boat. He doesn't use it to get away. He uses it actually to sit down, and he teaches from this boat. Look at verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat. There was no more room on the, on the land. So he was scooted all the way on a boat, and he sat on the boat on the sea. And a whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, he said to them, listen, and he, and he shares the parable of the sower that we just read. Jesus is starting to teach as he's sitting on this boat. He's starting to teach his favorite form of teaching, the parable. He starts to teach them in parable, which is a, a weird situation this morning because I've been studying this parable for some time, and the thing about parables is that Jesus sometimes spoke them so not everybody would get them. But I'm trying to explain them so everybody does get them. But the intent of them is that not everybody would get them. So I find myself in a very sticky situation here. I don't want to reveal too much of the kingdom of God because Jesus doesn't, but I want to reveal enough that it drives you deeper into the heart of God. And so here he shares this parable, and this is called the parable of the sower. It's actually the parable that unlocks all the other parables because in verse 13, Jesus says that if you can't understand this parable, you can't understand any parable. So this parable is key to unlock all the other parables that Jesus teaches. So it's important to understand what this parable is telling us. And, what, and, and that's why Jesus starts this parable with, with listen. 
He starts the parable by saying, listen. And then he ends the parable by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus wants us to get what he's saying. So this is how we're going to look at this particular parable. The purpose of the parable, the power of the seed, and the importance of response. This is how we'll break down today's text. The purpose of the parable, why Jesus uses parable, and then the power of the seed, as Jesus uses the seed to describe the kingdom of God, and then the importance of response. So first off, the purpose of a parable. Why did Jesus use parabolic language? Why did he speak in parables? Well, a parable is kind of like a joke. Timing and being there is everything with the parable. So a parable is like a joke. Um, there's sometimes my wife and I will watch uh, television and a, a comedian or, or some funny show, and, and my wife will get up to go to the kitchen to grab something, and I'll just start obnoxiously laughing at something. And she runs in really fast, what's so funny? And being a good husband, I try to explain to her what the joke was. Halfway through explaining the joke, I forgot why I laughed. Like I'm telling the joke, I'm like, I forgot why it's funny. It just struck me as funny. Timing is everything when it comes to a joke. A joke isn't funny if you have to explain it. And this is, what, this is the, the purpose of a parable. If you have to explain the parable, it loses a little bit of its punch. You, with the joke, you have to say, you had to be there. We probably all said that. It was so funny. Why? You just had to be there. It was just funny the way he said it or his timing or her timing or her face when she said what she said. It just, something immediately struck me as funny. And this is exactly what parables do. But instead of striking your funny bone, they strike your heart and your mind. At that very moment when a parable is shared, in that context, in that very time, it makes you think. It makes that person think and feel out what's going on. It's like when Nathan tells David this parable when he sins with Bathsheba. He's like, let me tell you a parable. There was a guy who had just one baby lamb, and this lamb they cared for, and they loved this lamb, and the neighbor had all these lamb and all these sheep, and he had a guest come over. And the neighbor stole that neighbor's baby lamb and came and killed it and served it to his guest. And David's like, who is this man? This should be killed, murdered. And then Nathan goes, you're the man. You're that man. And that parable draws him in to make him mad, to make him feel. And then Nathan just turns around and goes, that's you. You're that person who stole. You had everything that you would ever need and you stole somebody else's wife. You are the man. Parables do that. So when I read this parable, there's not many people that go, oh my gosh, that parable just cut my heart because we weren't there. We we're going, oh, okay, that parable. What, what does it mean? I don't, I don't get it. But the people that were there were so caught that some of them went back to Jesus and said, what does that parable mean? What's going on in that parable? Why did you share that one thing? Because something cut our hearts. Explain it to us. And this is what parables are supposed to do, to get you thinking and place yourself in the parable. If you have to explain a parable, it loses a bit of its punch. It's like explaining a joke. A joke is funny because it catches you off guard. How, how timing is everything. This is the same thing. Parables were to draw you to immediate response. The listeners had to have immediate response when Jesus told them a parable. They understood at that moment the context and the point of reference he was making. When I talk about sowing seeds and birds coming to eat them and on rocky soil, nobody gets that. You're like, I've never seen a seed. Some flower seeds? Maybe. Sesame seeds? Yes. But we don't sow seeds. So to us, this doesn't make that much sense. But to the first audience, it would have made perfect. They would have understood this parable. They would have understood what's going on. 
So we have to understand, we have to unpack a little bit the background, we'll do some background work on the context of this parable. In chapter 3, we saw last week and the week before, the, this is what's surrounding this particular parable. We saw that the unbelief and the opposition of Jesus was blatant. It was everywhere. Everybody that surrounded Jesus, it seemed, was in opposition to Jesus. In chapter 3, at the very beginning, Jesus healed the man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Do you remember? He had this withered hand, and everybody was looking at Jesus to see if he would heal the man, and it was on the Sabbath, and you can't heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus got mad and goes, stretch out your hand. This guy stretches out his hand. And then it says that the, the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the scribes, the conservative religious group, got together with the Herodians, the liberal left group, and plotted to destroy Jesus. We said that Jesus is neither conservative nor liberal. He's totally other. And the conservative and the liberal people want to destroy Jesus because he's absolutely other. Then later on in that same chapter last week, we saw the religious leaders declare that Jesus' power is demonic. They're like, your power is demonic. It's from Satan. And his family thought he was insane. His family thought he was a lunatic. Now, this, it's against this backdrop right here. People thinking that Jesus is insane and demonic and wanting to kill him that he tells this parable. You see, he's the one who's bringing the inbreaking kingdom of God. It's Jesus who's preaching the word, the gospel word. And through his word, Jesus likens his word to a seed. He's saying this, every time I preach and every time I, I, I proclaim and every time I heal and every time I advance the kingdom of God, it's like a seed. What are you doing with this seed? Hoping that the seed would take root, most people, most hearts reject the seed. Most hearts say, I want nothing to do with it. Even the landscape, if you back up and look at the landscape of this episode, the landscape of this parable is showing this parable in action. Jesus is sitting on a boat in the sea. Jesus is on a boat in the sea teaching. He's sowing seeds on a boat. And the people are on the land, they're on the ground. Mark uses the same word as Jesus uses, soil. So the people are on the soil, Jesus is on the sea. Even the way that Mark writes this in the original language is a little bit awkward, because it says this, that Jesus was on, sitting on the sea teaching. That's the way that Mark writes it in the Greek. It's almost this, like this, this allusion to Psalm chapter 29 that says that the Lord sits enthroned over the water, over the flood. So even in the landscape, you have the Lord sitting enthroned over the water, sowing seeds of his word on the soil of men's hearts. And the question is, how are you responding? How are you responding to the gospel word of Jesus? What is it that you're doing to respond to this? That's the punch of the parable. That's the punch of the parable that seems to get lost sometimes on us. The point of the parable, it's Donald English writes, this commentator, the point of a parable is to encourage serious, persistent, perceptive faith. Seriousness because hearing Jesus seems to have become one of those things that you just did at the time. Crowds beget crowds. And there was, there was enough excitement in the healings and the exorcisms and controversy to keep the crowds coming. This is why Jesus said, listen. There was all this buzz around Jesus, and crowds beget crowds. We all know that. If you're ever walking down the street and there's a crowd outside of a restaurant, you want to get in that line. You're like, what's going on in that place? I want a part of that. 
And so crowds beget crowds, and so people had this tendency just coming to Jesus and just listening. But it also means persistence because there were plenty of wandering teachers and miracle workers. And parabolic method of teaching did not pander to casual, half-hearted listener. The hearer had to work at it and continue with it. Do you ever feel that way in a sermon that you are having to listen and wrestle through what whoever's teaching is teaching? That's why Jesus taught in parabolic language. So then not that people can just go, oh, I'm kind of halfway listening, but people had to be fully engaged in what he was saying. And lastly, perception. Because at, the face, at face value, the stories were about things that just, that just about everybody in the crowd already knew. You had to be perceptive to see more than obvious. What's really going on with the parable of the sower is what people had to ask. The nature of, of, of a parable was to drive you deeper into the heart and the teachings of Jesus. It caused you to think and ask good questions. When Jesus spoke in parabolic language, it made you go deeper. Isn't that the point of a seed anyway? Don't seeds work by going in deep? Seeds don't work by sitting on the surface. You have to put them in deep soil. That's how they produce life. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, that's exactly what some of the people that heard the parable did. They actually went and asked Jesus more questions. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. See, this is why it's really hard to explain this, because it's, it's, it's a little bit of a secret. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is a very troubling verse sometimes. You're like, wait, Jesus is telling stories so that some people wouldn't get it? I thought that he wants everybody to get it. He does. He wants everybody who has faith to get it. He wants everybody who trusts in him to get it. He wants everybody who's putting their faith and trust in Jesus to get it. The parables were a way that Jesus made insiders into outsiders and outsiders into insiders. People thought they knew who was inside and who was outside. The observant Jew, the scribe, the Pharisee, the Sadducees, they were on the inside. The religious leaders were insiders, everybody thought. And the sinner, the tax collector, the leper, the poor, the Gentile, those were on the outside, but not when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he reversed this. The insider now was the one who heard and listened to Jesus. Insiders were those who went up to Jesus after he taught and asked him what the heck he was talking about. Those were the insiders. And even though they didn't fully understand, what made an insider an insider in the kingdom of God was that Jesus was bringing in was that they believed Jesus' words. The power of the seed they believed in the power of God's word to change them. They heard and they believed. And what we'll see in the coming chapters in Mark is this theme of Jesus making people insiders who were previously outsiders. In chapter 5, we will meet a demoniac, crazy, naked cave dweller that is totally outside, in chains, outside the city, and Jesus makes him an insider. We'll also meet a woman with the flow of blood for 12 years who was literally unclean in every human and religious way possible, and Jesus makes her an insider. 
And then we'll meet in chapter 7 a Gentile woman who had a demon-possessed child. You don't get more outside than that. A woman who was a Gentile who had a demoniac child. But Jesus heals this child and brings this woman who's a Gentile inside. And this is why Jesus told parables. To flip the world upside down. To flip who's inside and who's outside. Who's going to listen to Jesus with ears of faith? Who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why Jesus told parables. People that did not want to hear Jesus, when Jesus told parables, like, ah, oh, whatever, let's just move on. But those that really wanted to hang on every word of Christ was like, why is he telling this parable? Who does that mean? What does this mean in the parable? And they ask, and they ask, and they question, and they go deeper. But Jesus says that the, going back to this parable, he says that the, the word of God is like a seed. Look at verse 14. The sower sows the word. So Jesus likens his word to a seed. Think about this. Of all the things that Jesus could have used to describe his word, the gospel word, he says it's a simple, small seed. He could have said with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 that his word was a fire and a hammer. That would have been cool if Jesus said that. My word is like a fire and a hammer. He could have said that my, my word has come to consume and to crush people. Actually, this is what the Jews were waiting for in the coming Messiah. In the Old Testament, the way that the Jews interpreted the Messiah, the way that they thought Messiah would come, one of the biggest interpretive lenses in the Old Testament to interpret the Messiah's activity was Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interpreted this dream for the powerful king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of this huge statue and the statue was made of all these different metals, from greater to lesser. And the head was of, of gold and then silver, bronze, iron, all the way down to his feet made of clay mixed with iron. But what troubled Nebuchadnezzar the most was at the end of this dream, he saw at the end, turned into a nightmare really fast, he saw this stone coming out of the sky, struck the feet, and crushed the entire statue to powder, like chaff, and then the wind came and blew it away, so there was not a single trace of that statue left. And then the stone grew and grew and became a mountain and took over the whole world. Then he woke up. That was the dream. And Daniel interpreted the dream. And Daniel said that this image was the kingdom of man. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the head of gold. And then another kingdom would come after, and then another and another and another, powerful but not as strong. And this is what Daniel says about that stone, verses 44. And in the days of that, talking about this huge stone coming out of heaven, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever, just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. And this is what everybody was waiting for. They were waiting for the Messiah to bring the hammer, to bring the fire, to bring the stone from heaven that would grind to powder all the kingdoms of men. But Jesus didn't come that way. 
He came subversively. His kingdom came so differently and so grassroots that his family called him crazy and the religious leaders called him demonic. And look at the way Jesus was talking about his kingdom. He uses parables. Even when Jesus tries to explain the subversive kingdom, he uses mysterious language. It's like the only way you can understand this kingdom is by trusting Jesus and listening to Jesus and asking him questions and wrestling with what he says because it doesn't make sense. It's like the world flipped upside down. And then he uses the most fragile and vulnerable but most complex and powerful metaphor to describe the inbreaking kingdom of God. He says it's like a seed. It's not a hammer. It's not fire. It's not a stone. It's a seed. The inbreaking kingdom of God in our lives is a seed. The gospel word of that Jesus is preaching and embodying is like a seed, a tiny, fragile, vulnerable seed. Why a seed? Because a seed contains the power of life and brings life only after it's been buried in good soil. If you've ever thought, why hasn't Christianity ever taken with me? Why hasn't Jesus ever like really taken off for me? It could be that you're trying to do all these external things. A seed goes in, and it takes a long... Remember that little science project you did when you were in elementary school, waiting for the seed to sprout, and it took like four years to sprout? And you're just waiting for the seed to break ground, and you're like, what is going on underneath the soil? And your teacher would be like, just wait, be patient. Like, how many of you guys dug, dug the seed out just to see if it was doing something? <laughs> Teacher's like, wait, it will come out. A lot of you guys are like, I did, I, I prayed, I, I, I asked God, but nothing is changing yet. The gospel word goes in and changes you from the inside out, and sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it's gradual, and it breeds and brings life within you. That's why Jesus says, My kingdom of, the kingdom of God is like a seed, a subversive little planted seed. You can bury almost any other object in the ground, and it won't grow anything. You can bury coins and rocks and people, they don't grow in the ground. They're not made to, but a seed is. A seed is meant to grow. I mean, you could put coins in the ground and give them the best sunlight and soil and water, and they won't grow, but a seed does. That's the way God made them. See, nothing else contains the power of organic life. Nothing else contains the power of renewal inside of it. This is why Jesus connects his word to a seed, because his word has the power to bring life to his hearers. His word that's planted deep in your soul has the power to bring life. James chapter 1 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Therefore, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word going in deep is able to save your souls. Jesus is sowing the life of God. That's what he's doing. That's what the inbreaking kingdom of God is. It's the life of God being brought in you, being birthed in you. Our Kent Hughes says, within every seed, there's an almost infinite potential for life. I mean, think about the power of a seed for a second. A single acorn has a power to create an entire forest. A single seed could create an entire forest. 
inside that little seed, there is the potential for the kind of organic life and growth that cannot be achieved outwardly, but only inwardly. The gospel word of Jesus Christ is a seed. And it has to go into the depths of your soul to bring about life and to bear fruit. But this is also why we have to be careful. This is why you and I have to be very careful. Though the seed has the power for infinite and eternal life, it can also easily be snatched away. What's so troubling about this parable is the vulnerability of the seed. I mean, the seed's powerful. It could bring life, but it's so vulnerable. You, it, you throw it out, and a bird comes up and goes, it's gone. You throw it out there, and it grows, and it gets scorched by the sun. You throw it out there, and weeds are more powerful than the seed. It's vulnerable. That's what's so troubling. When seed goes out, it takes root, but then sometimes it gets choked out. This is why we have to be careful. Though the seed has power for infinite and eternal life, it can also be snatched away. It cannot take root. It can be choked out. And this is the warning in the parable. This is very important. This is finally, let's talk about the importance of response then. Because Jesus, the bulk of this is spent talking about these different people's hearts. As a teacher of the Bible, this is the craziest part of teaching. This is something that when I pray throughout the week for this little short time in in God's word, is crazy because there's times where I really catch the weight, the gravity of the fact that everybody's walking up these stairs with all this baggage on them. People come and sit in this sanctuary and churches all over the city and all over this state and all over this world with so much junk they bring in. And it's so hard sometimes to even hear a sermon because, well, first of all, a lot of us are ADD, thanks to Sesame Street. And a lot of us just have so much worry. We have so much doubt. That's why a lot of preachers have gone to the let me help you sermons. Let me help you how to, how to run your life well with finances. Let me help you how to do this and how to do that and seven points and 18 points on this and five points on that and I wrote 14 books on this. That's why this self-help has like come into the church because everybody comes in with so much stuff and it's like, if you can get me through this week, preacher, I would be grateful. Actually, if you get me through this day, I'd be thankful. And that's what happens. And so people come in. Whenever there's an audience gathered to hear the word of God, Whether it was 2,000 years ago or today, the room is filled with so many messy people, so many issues, so many problems, so many concerns. I mean, there's there's people that gather in rooms like this that for whatever reason have contemplated suicide, maybe even to the point of planning it. And there are people who sit under so much pressure at work and life that you think that any minute you might be crushed under the weight of the pressure. And oh, what it would be like just to have a normal breathing pattern again. And there are people who cannot wait to spend another exciting night with somebody they don't know. That rush of excitement you get when you realize that this thing with this person might progress exactly how you want it to, and you're willing to go there, even though you'll feel cheap and empty later, that rush is undeniable. And you're consumed by it. You're consumed by the next time out. And there's a person who's thinking, did I make a big mistake? Was, I, was moving to this city the biggest mistake I've ever made? 
Was taking this job the biggest mistake I've ever made? Was marrying this person a mistake? Has the last year or two or five been one big mistake? And then there's a person who simply asks themselves this question over and over again. What am I doing with my life? What does my life even mean or does that question even matter? And then there's a person who just wants to move on to the next Sunday activity. And they think that this whole churchy religion Jesus thing is fairy tale, and they'd just rather move on to the lunch part of the day. And so rooms like this are filled with these type of people. And this is exactly the parable that Jesus says. When he's there on the sea, if you could get the scene, with the people on the soil, and Jesus is, actually his life is a parable here, sowing himself into people. All he says when I sow this seed, I, I'm sowing it into all these different situations. I'm sowing my seed generously in all these different places. And three quarters of the people, three out of four people, reject the seed. Absolutely reject them because of all the stuff they come with. This is exactly what Jesus is illustrating here. He says there are people who never let the gospel penetrate their hearts who stand at odds with Jesus as we talked about last week. The seed of the word lays on the surface and Satan comes in like a vulture from the sky and takes the word away. You're like, well, Jesus can't really help me. This Jesus guy, whatever. And then Satan comes in and just feasts on that and takes it right away. Then there's people who get excited about the gospel and they get excited about Jesus. And for a brief moment, they think Jesus can help me. And there's joy, but there's no repentance. There's no sorrow or shame for your sin or grief or repentance. It's superficial reaction. Jesus becomes an accessory to make your life look or seem better. And there's no brokenness and there's no nakedness before God. And Jesus says that these people are like a seed that falls on rocky soil. And the seed springs up fast, but because the seed never went deep, it has no root And at the first hint of difficulty, when Jesus gets in the way of your goals or your fun, the seed is scorched and it dies. Then there's this third group of people who have good soil, but it's overgrown with weeds. It's overgrown with worry and desire and career and money and trying to find the right somebody or trying to be the right somebody or trying to be a free spirit or trying to be self-expressive or whatever It's where the gospel seed never has a chance. And Jesus says very graphically that these things choke the gospel out. Like the gospel comes in and they just like strangle it to death so it can't breathe and it kills it. What's going on that three out of the four hearts totally reject the gospel? This last week, a friend recommended that I read this book. It's a really good book by um, Frederick Buechner called Telling the Truth. The gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. I want to read a quote from it. I think it's, it's fitting here. He says this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm actually going to read the book to you. <clears throat> okay, if you could read that. If you need to borrow my glasses, I can. He says this. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, 
that when he looks in the mirror, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That is the tragedy. But it's also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin, the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and the forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a damn? An answer, the news of the gospel is that the extraordinary, that extraordinary things happen to him just as in fairy tales, extraordinary things happen. Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree, a crook, and climbs down a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. It is impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of the world he carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. Beneath our clothes, our reputations, our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, we are all vulnerable both to the storm without and to the storm within. And if ever we are to find true shelter, it's with the recognition of our tragic nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. After the silence that is truth comes the news that is bad before it is good. The word is a tragedy before it is comedy because it strips us bare in order to ultimately clothe us. That is the gospel. That's what the gospel seed, the word of the gospel does. What he's saying is that, do you see how powerful and vulnerable the gospel is at the same time? It has the organic power of new life, but it can be crushed, taken away by stupid birds or choked out and scorched. It has the power to bring you life, but it also can be eaten. The gospel that is tragedy and comedy and a bitter fairy tale needs exposure to the deep parts of your life. That's the point. The gospel needs exposure. The gospel needs to be rooted down deep. It needs to be pushed down deep nakedness, as he calls it. You have to let the gospel strip you bare and take deep root in your soul in order for it to ultimately clothe you, in order for the gospel to bear fruit in your life. At the beginning of this sermon, we talked about the punch of the parable. What is the punch? Why is Jesus sharing this parable? What's the punch of it? The punch of the parable is how people respond to Jesus. As Jesus teaches, as he lavishly sows his gospel word. I mean, if you look at this, you're going, this, is, this sower is not a really good sower. I mean, this guy who's throwing seed out everywhere, who throws seed on the sidewalk and in bushes? You shouldn't do that. You should only save the, the seed that you sow for good soil. But this sower doesn't do that. He sows lavishly, on the sidewalk, in bushes, everywhere. Jesus is lavish. He's a lavish lover, throwing seeds somewhere where people might even accuse him of being wasteful. Why would you throw seeds there, sowing places like even in San Francisco? But how do people respond to the gospel? That's the punchline. Jesus didn't come like a fire, like a hammer, or like that stone that grinds every other human kingdom to powder. He could have. He didn't. Rather, he came like a seed. Because seeds only give their life-giving power after they fall to the ground and die. Seeds only bring out life once they fall to the ground and die. 
In John chapter 12, Jesus says that unless a grain, a seed, falls to the ground and dies, it can never produce life. He says that it remains just a seed, alone, a sole seed, until it falls to the ground and dies. But if it falls to the ground, it dies. It produces life. If it falls to the ground and dies, if Jesus becomes vulnerable to open to the fists of men and the beatings and the hatred and the torture of men, if Jesus falls to the ground and dies, he can produce the life of God in us, that organic, sustainable life of God. And he does. And 1 Peter says this, chapter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Let the gospel, if you have ears to hear this morning, let the gospel penetrate to the deepest, darkest fear and insecurities of your heart and watch as he changes you from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes I, I feel that these are just words until you make them uh, be buried deep into our souls. And I pray that you would do that now. God, I pray that you would, you would cause faith to rise up in this place, that people would believe in your word and be changed, that the gospel would be driven down so deep in people's lives that their whole life is changed from the inside out. I pray that people with their baggage and their problems and their things would, would as we read in that quote, would, would just get so bare before you and lay that all out, Lord, that you would cause that word, your word, the gospel, to go in so deep that it changes us. We thank you for the power of your word, how subtle it is, how weird that you have a, a guy up here talking about the Bible and that can actually be used to change people's lives. We don't get it, Lord but we trust you, Jesus. I pray that you would transform us. May your gospel have its full effect and full work in here this morning. In Jesus' name.